This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, enjoy a great lineup of interviews. First, Andrew Brown talks with author and historian Lydia Otero and columnist Alva B. Torres. We'll join them at a book release party to listen in on their stories and their friendship. Adiba Nelson has a conversation with Sonia Manzano, beloved by generations for playing Maria on Sesame Street. Now she's launching her own show on PBS Kids called Alma's Way. And author Larry Dane Brimner has dedicated his award-winning career to writing about complex social issues for the youngest of readers. Brimner will discuss his new picture book, Without Separation, Prejudice, Segregation, and the Case of Roberto Alvarez. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. From 1984 until 1993, Alva B. Torres was a columnist for the Tucson Citizen, specializing in local flavor. These features are collected in a newly published book called Notitas, Select Columns from the Tucson Citizen. It was edited by Torres' longtime friend, historian and author Lydia Otero. Otero is currently receiving critical acclaim for their book, In the Shadows of the Freeway, Growing Up Brown and Queer. It received a 2021 Southwest Book Award from the Pima County Public Library. The two writers came together last Saturday at the Carrillo House for a book release party for Notitas. It was attended by more than 100 readers and fans. Producer Andrew Brown got to speak with these two Tucson literary pioneers. Hola, como estas? Hey, Neto, how are you? Hey, Neto. Good to see you. Good to see you. So today the book release is uh, for Notitas, select columns from the Tucson Citizen, written by Alba B. Torres. She wrote a, a weekly column for The Citizen, and she wrote over 400, uh, close to 400 columns. She authored all of the columns, but I compiled a book during the last year. My name is Alba B. Torres. B stands for Bustamante. Our families have been here a long time ago, uh, in McCockery, and two back in 1750. But I don't consider ourselves like pioneers. It's just yeah. that, obviously, we loved it here. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be... 90, God willing, on May 11th next year. And my hair is off purple, kind of plum. Plum. That's a nice color. I thank Lydia with all my heart because it is something I never, ever, even in my wildest dreamt of anything like this ever happening with the columns at all. I enjoyed writing them all the time. I really did. And I enjoyed uh, meeting people, finding out about them. Um, they were just wonderful. I only got paid $15 a week, so you know that it was a joy yeah. to write that column. Yeah. Then I'm just going to get one. Just one? Okay, great. And she can take your card. There's your card back. Do you want me to text or email you a receipt? My name is Adriana Canoza, and I'm selling books for Dr. Lydia Otero. I noticed just from being at the past few events, 
that have definitely drawn more people. We're getting a good mix of folks who are from here and I think really engage and feel really heard and seen with Lydia's writing. Um, but then you also have like kind of a new group of people. And I think they're doing the important work of getting to know the history of where they're living. Um, so I think that might be kind of where that's coming from. I can take cash and she can take card. And you're all set. Thank you. I've sold two stacks and we're moving through them. <laughs> that person's walking away with uh, eight books. So, I mean, I am a little overwhelmed by the response. I think people are very excited about it. I just want to give you some insight as to which of the columns I selected. I wanted columns that were specifically about Tucson, about Tucson people, uh, about places in Tucson. I also wanted uh, stories of ordinary people. She interviewed Lorraine Aguilar, who talked about growing up here. And this was in the 1940s. She kept uh, chickens and she kept turkeys. And she said sometimes if her mother didn't clip and cut the wings of the turkeys, they'd get over the fence. And here's Lorraine having to chase a turkey down Stone Boulevard into downtown. Like, that was fascinating to me. I also found it fascinating because many people told me that they would go to Meyerson's White House and get their shoes fitted by putting their feet in an x-ray machine. Lots of people have told me that. And uh, that they would like it and keep their feet there an extra minute or so so they could see their toes move. And I also included an advertisement by Meyerson's White House so that you would see that they they were proud to have an x-ray machine to ensure a good fit. Yeah, it's Is it raining? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Well, protect your books. Okay. I'm going to surprise you because I'm not going to talk very much. So thank you for coming. Thank you, thank you, thank you, especially Lydia. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Alicia Vasquez. I decided to come down because Dr. Otero has been a huge influence on me in terms of the way that I also am a historian. I am from Tucson and I see the beauty um, that exists in this town. That's actually, I think, underappreciated by younger generations. Honestly, I think my bigger goal in um, reading this book is connecting to my, my nana and my tia who remember reading Alpha's column. I was always interested in the beginnings because, you know, people say, well, we're here now, but you didn't just get here. People struggled. When people were first here, there wasn't any cooling. There wasn't any running water. People struggled to have a city here. And I think we have to appreciate that, not just take it for granted. Yeah. And that's probably in all cities, but yeah. I just know about this one because this is where I live and this is where I was born. And I hope I die here. You know, I just am inspired by Alba when I'm around her, and she's going to be 90, but she still continues to inspire us. You could see by the crowd outside that the well, book is selling a lot. I think it's selling because people remember Alba. They remember her columns. Um, there was a woman that was actually named after Alba in yes, her columns. Yeah, so, I mean, she meant a lot to Tucsonense's community, but I think she meant a lot to Tucsonense, period. She's not talking about this national landscape but she's like focusing in and talking about people women active in pta um, for example i didn't know and i got to appreciate her work that for the 16 de septiembre 
there was always a reina anointed at the casino ballroom. It was a big deal. And you've probably seen photographs of that. Right. But I didn't know that these reinas uh, that became celebrities in the Tucsonense community, everywhere they went, they were always a reina. Uh -huh. And in one of the columns, Alba says, if you come to this event, you'll get to meet a reina. And she lists her, the names. And I thought, wow, that's, that's just uh, interesting that these women had that recognition of being a reina and they carried it the rest of their lives. So those are the things I looked for, stories that made me rethink what I know about Tucson and what I've written about Tucson. Well, you always have to think of Tucson as being people. You know, a, a, a city is not just what it looks like, or the mountains, or the air, or the climate. A city is, has a certain personality. So I think Tucson is a very, as I said, loving city because we have a lot of people that love it. Andrew Brown spoke with Alva B. Torres and Lydia Otero, you can find Notitas in many local bookstores. The LGBTQ Services Committee and the Nuestras Raices team of the Pima County Public Library host a conversation with Lydia Otero. It's online Saturday, October 16th. Registration is free. There's a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. If you are older than six and you grew up with a TV, chances are good you remember Sonia Manzano, who played Maria on Sesame Street. For a remarkable 44 years, Manzano was an integral part of Children's Television Workshop. She chose to leave the show in 2015, but this fall, she's returning to PBS Kids with her own creation, an animated series called Alma's Way. Next, guest interviewer Adiba Nelson talks with Sonia Manzano about this new adventure. What was your inspiration for Alma's Way? Linda Siminski from PBS Kids asked me to create a show, an animated series, and uh, frankly, I wouldn't have started to create a children's show after Sesame Street. I mean, that's a really tough act to follow, as I often say. Uh, but she wanted a family show uh, with a Latin, Latinx family. So, of course, since I'm uh, Puerto Rican, I made them a Puerto Rican family. Since I'm New Yorican, they're New Yorican as well. And I placed them in the, uh, in the South Bronx because that's where I grew up. Mm. Now, the message of the show or the goal of the show was left up to me. And I had noticed that of a lot of kids were confusing memorization with intellect. Hmm. And I created the show so they could be assured that memorizing information was not a sign of being smart, but thinking was a sign of being smart. Can you give an example of um, what that would look like on Alma's Way? In every episode, Alma has a problem or gets into a jam because she misunderstands something. Mm -hmm. And she says, I better think about this. And then a special effect globe type thing appears next to her head and in it we see her process of thinking she oh. says well if mommy did this and poppy did that then i can apply that to my problem here and at the end of her thought process she says i know what to do i can give you an example in the opening show no go mofongo mm -hmm. mofongo is a puerto rican dish that's very labor intensive yes uh, alma decides to help her mother prepare it 
without her mother's supervision. Well, she kind of messes up the dish and doesn't know what to do until she remembers that she saw her mother tell her father very truthfully that he didn't look great in an apron. And she says, well, that was the best thing to do. I better just fess up. And after she recalls what she had just seen her parents do, she solves her problem and she calls her mother and she says, guess what? I messed up the mofongo. (laughs) So that's an example of how we see that in the show. I love it. So it gives kids a real life example because I don't know any child that doesn't like to help their parents in the kitchen and then surprise mom, I made breakfast and they bring it to you in bed and it doesn't really look like anything you would normally eat. But Alma in this this situation is like, oh, I don't know what to do. And so she goes and calls for help. I think that's fantastic. I think that's fantastic. Thank you. I want to just touch on one thing. Are you actually telling us that you wrote for Bert and Ernie as well? Oh, yes. I was a a writer for Sesame Street for about 15 years, actually. Did you have a favorite character that you wrote for? Because I think from us watching it, we just assume that you were only Maria. Oh, no, no. I wrote for all the characters. I wrote uh, my favorite character was Oscar the Grouch. (laughs) Because he was negative, and it's easy to write for somebody who's a little on the negative side because it gives you instant drama because he was going to disagree with you if you wanted to recite the alphabet. He would say no, and then you'd insist upon it, and thereby you could teach the lesson. So that's where I sort of owned my writing skills and, you know, brought all of that to Alma's Way. I've also written some of the scripts for Alma's Way. One that I'm very pleased with that I wrote her is that her father, Alma's father, Bobby, accidentally picks up one of the kids' toys and throws it in the washing machine along with the dirty clothes. And nobody knows where to find it. And then they retrace their steps and they remember how her mother lost something and retraced her steps and the kids retraced their steps in Alma's thought bubble. Ay, 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 they find the toy in the washing machine. As a parent myself, you know, seeing the characters that you've created for the show, being an Afro-Latin woman, it was very clear to me that Alma and her family are Afro-Latin. The people in the neighborhood are of various descents, of various cultures, Was that intentional? You bet. I haven't seen too many Afro-Puerto Ricans or Afro-Cubans on television in children's shows, and we really wanted to highlight that. And because these are Latinx people from the Caribbean, mostly. Mm -hmm. Now, we do have some characters that are of Mexican-American descent, and we're having a lot of fun fooling around with the different Spanish expressions that they use. For example, Puerto Ricans say chévere, mm-hmm. and they think something is great. Mm-hmm. And these uh, Mexican-American characters will say, que padre, mm-hmm. which is a way of, uh, of expressing enthusiasm. So we're taking advantage of the opportunity to show that Latins come in all sizes, shapes, colors, and use different variations of our language. That's a lot of fun. And we also have a Bangladeshi family in the show. Uh, When I was a kid, everybody who owned the bodega was Puerto Rican. But now Mm -hmm. in the Bronx, people who own bodegas are from Bangladesh. And we're having a lot of fun with that culture as well. 
Is that something that you hope parents will lean into exploring with their children aside from the messages of critical thinking, intellect? Do you hope that they also have conversations around culture with their children after watching Elma's Way? Of course. I'm hoping that they watch the show and that Safina, one of the characters in the Bangladeshi family, wears a headscarf. I, I want them to say, why is she wearing a headscarf? But I think... Uh, we're not going to beat people over the head with culture and messages. The best way to reach people is to be funny. I've learned that from Sesame Street. We hope that at the end of each 11-minute segment, uh, the parent is inspired to talk about the show and say, wow, I see the Puerto Rican flag and I see uh, the Bangladesh flag. And, and isn't that interesting that there's a lot of different flags that mean there's a lot of different kinds of people that live in this one neighborhood? So it's kind of ironic then that after being on Sesame Street for 44 years and after having left, not really thinking you would step back into the world of children's television, because as you said, those are big shoes to fill, you've essentially created your own neighborhood now. Yes, it's remarkable. I feel like I've uh, come back home. Who says you can't go home again? (laughs) Right, right. Because Because I feel I have come back home to PBS. Mm-hmm. And not only that, I've come back home full circle to the Bronx. Right, right. Uh, Ellen Doherty of Fred Rogers Productions says, no, let's go for it. If it's the Bronx, make it the Bronx. So it's a very specific place. And we have the number six train running through it to right. prove it. The number six train, for those who don't know, is a train that is in the MTA system in New York City. But it's a lot of it's become like a Puerto Rican icon for a while. Mm-hmm. Many mm-hmm. people wearing a underground T-shirt that said the number six train to the Bronx and Puerto Rico. <laughs> I took the number six train. I know. Yep. Halo mentions the number six train, as mm-hmm. you know. Hector Lavoe, who was a very famous salsa singer yep. with Willie Colon, has a song about the number six train. So it has sort of become an. Uh, an icon for for Puerto Ricans in the Bronx. So I'm really happy that it's in it. Uh, Not everything is specific. There's a couple of beach shows Uh where Alma and her family go to the beach, and it's obviously Orchard Beach, which is where a lot of Puerto Ricans went. I went as a kid, but we don't name it Orchard Beach because we don't want people to get concerned with, well, 179th Street doesn't really cross Bronx. <laughs> you know, right. and be that specific. It's not a geography show, but we do have those icons. No, and I, I love that as being um, a fellow New Yorker, being a Puerto Rican girl. Um, wrote the six numerous times. And so in the opening credits, when they showed the six in the background, I was like, oh my gosh, that's, I grew up there. This is my, this is my home. I know this. Um, So that was really lovely to see. Um, Do you voice any of the characters on Elma's Way? Well, of course I couldn't resist. I play Granny Issa, who is a stewardess. She travels around the world and she connects with Alma via the internet she and Abuelo are divorced. That's why she doesn't live with them. Okay. She is named after my mother. My mother was Isa Rivera. Actually, the family's name is Rivera. Okay. And so she's named after my mother. And it's interesting that people have noticed that I named her Granny Isa as opposed to Abuela Isa. And even though the, her ex-husband is Abuelo, so there's Abuelo and Granny Isa, and there's also 
an aunt and uncle named Uncle Nestor and Tia Gloria. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a good way of uh, illustrating the biculturalness of the show. Mm -hmm. I like to sort of have a little bit of both in each show. It reflects the music as well. Let's talk a little bit about the music. What type of music do you highlight? Well, I loved as a kid, even before I ever visited Puerto Rico, was Aguinaldos. And those are folkloric songs that the mountain people sang, the jibaros of Puerto Rico sang. And my parents used to sing those songs, and I was fascinated by those songs. And I also loved the bomba en plena music, which was music from mostly Afro-Puerto Ricans who lived in Luis Aldea in Puerto Rico. And I love that music, and so I wanted to have some of that in the show. Of course, I also love salsa from Puerto Rico, like Ismael Rivera's music, but I also love salsa in New York that has that New York brassy sound. That's the Willie Colon type of salsa. But of course, it's in the Bronx, so how can you not have hip-hop rap and uh, break dancing and, and all of that kind of music, too? So we have all of that kind of music, and I'm sure we'll also hear some uh, homages to uh, to Motown because I was raised loving Smokey Robinson and the Miracles as well. So all of that comes into the show, but still always illustrating that it's all about thinking. I am so absolutely excited <laughs> for this. Um, how different has it been being a voice behind a character as opposed to being on the screen? I liked improvising on Sesame Street because it was a live action and you kind of did it on the spot. Mm -hmm. And you could change dialogue on the spot and you were really talking to a puppet right there. But animation is a really long process. So whatever I say in the recording, I'm stuck with it. Mm. I can't change it. Right, right, it's <laughs> and there. And months later, yeah, I'll see an animation of myself and I'll think, oh, I wish I had said it like this or I wish I had added this line, but you can't. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's not a constraint or anything like that. It's just a different art form mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. than live action. So that's a big difference to me. I wanted to make sure that I was uh, attractive looking. So I said to the, uh, the designers, the pipeline, who are the animators of the show, make sure that she's attractive looking and like in <laughs> what I think is attractive. <laughs> right. right. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, and, and they have certainly complied. They've, they, uh, the, the, my image as Granny Isa is, is quite beautiful as are all the characters are quite beautiful. And uh, also I wanted to make sure that the women had kind of the Caribbean bodies mm -hmm body shape, mm -hmm. and uh, we've paid a lot of attention to nose shape right. and skin tones. That was something that I definitely noticed um, was the noses of the character because being Puerto Rican, you know, we have a certain nose shape. When I saw the clips for the show, I, that was the first thing I noticed was like, oh my gosh, they have a nose like my family. <laughs> Music to my ears. Please ask me <laughs> next question. <laughs> um, another thing that I noticed in the trailer was that there is a character that seems to have a disability. Can you tell me about him? Oh, yes. Alma's cousin, Eddie Mambo, has cerebral palsy. That character is a combination of two people in my own life. Many of the characters are combinations of people in my own life that I knew. And my cousin, Eddie Guagua Rivera, was a bass player, and we were very close. 
as Alma is to her cousin, Eddie Mambo. And there was also a kid in my neighborhood who had polio, and he loved to dance. He would lock his braces and twirl girls around with his upper body, kind of directing them their moves with the strength of his upper body and his sense of rhythm. And it, I thought it was so fabulous that he was so bold that, you know, he couldn't use his legs, but that didn't keep him from dancing. So Eddie Mambo is a combination of my cousin, Eddie Guagua Rivera, and this kid. I think his name was Dennis, actually. And Eddie Mambo is a great dancer, and he plays a lot of instruments, and he plays conga. And uh, we haven't pointed out the fact that he has cerebral palsy. We just we just show it. I mean, there's, it's like, you know, normalizing it. Right. He gets to be a kid just like Alma. Yeah. Love that your show has as much diversity as it has inclusion. But, you know, I think that the key is the characters are sincere as possible. I remember at Sesame Street, uh, I would travel to the Midwest where there were no Latin people or places where there were hardly any people of color. And they said to me, you were the first Latin woman I ever saw. And I would think to myself, is that true? And I, then I thought, you know, they probably did see Latin women somewhere in the background, but they didn't see them as full human people. Right. And I think that's what Maria did. And that's what I'm hoping these characters do, even though they're animated. We'll see. Well, I know for me, seeing Maria on television was the first time I remember cognitively understanding that there was another Puerto Rican woman on television. You know, I saw Rita Moreno on The Electric Company, but I was very, very young. Sesame Street was more my four, five, six, admittedly into college and still today years. Oh, yes. And you were my first recognition of, oh, you kind of look like my Titi Rossing or my Titi Mimi. Oh, wait, you're also Puerto Rican. So it was that that knowledge that, oh, I do exist in this world. And um, for my daughter to see another child on television who is also Afro-Latin, but also there's a character with a disability, she definitely sees herself on television. I would be remiss if I did not say thank you for that. Well, thank you for saying that. And I can speak to that. I grew up at a time in the 50s when you never saw it. We were invisible. Latins were invisible of any color, certainly not on television or in the media in any way. And I did feel that I didn't know what I could contribute to a society that was blind to me. Uh, So I'm glad that uh, uh, I was able to do that for others through Maria on Sesame Street and further now with Alma in Alma's way. 100% you did. I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up. I just have one last question for you. Um, As you know, Maria is near and dear to my heart. And so my final question is something I've always been curious about is how much of Maria is actually Sonia Manzano? Maria is everything Sonia Manzano, only on purpose and better. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time and for your energy and for your commitment to children's television. I am so excited for Alma's Way, which starts Monday, October 4th on our local PBS Kids station here. And if you're listening throughout the country, you can check your local listings to see when it will be airing there. Thank you so much for your time. So thanks for your interest. Adios. Adios. Thanks to Adiba Nelson, who interviewed Sonia Manzano. 
You can listen to more of their conversation right now and find many essays written by Adiba on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. My guest, Larry Dane Brimner, has been recognized with many awards for his nonfiction books written for children and teens. Brimner has chosen a long list of difficult subjects for his audience to read about, including racism, social injustice, and political persecution. He says that while his young readers often embrace the importance of these topics, they can often be shocked at the inequalities they reveal. His newest book is no exception, as Larry Dane Brimner will tell us. Yes, I write for young people, uh, young readers and young listeners. I write for children anywhere from the ages of just beginning to read uh, through the teenage years. But you're not telling them stories about princesses and castles. You're telling them stories about real-life, nonfiction events that have happened in the course of the United States history. And... I think that's fascinating, Larry. I think it's really interesting that you chose to write about probably the most difficult subjects you could possibly discuss with a child. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. Um, talking about civil rights and social justice with young children uh, isn't always the easiest thing to broach with them, but I try to simplify things in terms that they will understand and Many of the cases I've drawn from are real miscarriages of justice, and those would be books for teenagers, for example. And um, you know, I'm thinking about my book about the Scottsboro Boys, and that is principally for teenagers. But when I talk to teenagers who have read the book, they are flabbergasted just uh disbelieving that anything like that could have transpired in our legal system. So I try to choose stories that, um, well, <laughs> make my heart quiver with recognition, I guess you would say. <laughs> and I try to tell them in a way that young people will be able to discern for themselves what is the appropriate path of action and what is the inappropriate path of action. Well, your latest book relates the story of something that happened in 1931. Take us back to that date and tell us essentially what the story behind Roberto Alvarez's challenge. The book is called Without Separation, and it's about Roberto Alvarez, who in January of 1931, on the first day after Christmas vacation, went to school with uh, another group of children, exactly like him, Mexican and Mexican-American. And when they got to the door of the schoolhouse of Lemon Grove uh, Grammar School, the principal welcomed all of the students except for the Mexican and Mexican-American children. He told them that they didn't belong there they had to go to a newly constructed school, um, which was on Olive Street, and uh, referred to it as the Mexican school. He told them that their desks and their teachers were already there, their books were there, and that 
they were not allowed into Lemon Grove Grammar School. And what was at the core of that decision from the principal and the school board? That was a school board decision, and what prompted that was a letter from the PTA, and the person actually behind the PTA, rumor has it, is that she was a concerned parent, but also one of the members of the school board, and she wrote a letter saying that the Mexican and Mexican-American children were holding the white children back because of their lack of language skills. And uh, she went on to say in her letter to the school board that um, the Mexican and Mexican-American children came from unclean homes and they were unhealthy and posed a threat, a health threat, to the white children in the school. So that prompted the school board to hold basically two board meetings. At the first board meeting, they decided they were going to take it up under serious discussion. The second board meeting, they approved um, funding for the second school. But you have to understand that Lemon Grove Grammar School was a a five-room school. It was stucco. It was modern. In fact, the Chamber of Commerce said that it had the highest academic ranking of all the schools in San Diego County. And so right there, you know that there is some discrepancy, at least between what the Chamber of Commerce is saying and what the letter to the school board was indicating. Well, let's talk about Roberto. What kind of student was he and where was his family from? Well, his family was from Mexico, and they had come to El Norte, to the north, to the United States, for a better life. And they settled in Lemon Grove, uh, more or less the Mexican barrio portion of Lemon Grove. And when all of this came down, uh, the parents held meetings, and they they suspected that the wooden two-room school that was being built was for their children and and that its intent was to separate or segregate the Mexican children from the uh, white children. And so Roberto himself was an excellent student. He spoke English as well as any of the white students. And that is why the case took on his name. How far up the chain of our legal system did it rise? Well, it went all the way to court, to the Superior Court in San Diego, and Roberto testified in front of the judge, and the judge found him articulate and very thoughtful. And so the judge then knew that the claims that the school board was making were were false, and the school board had the backing of San Diego's district attorney who also felt that the Mexican children should go to a separate school. What the parents had done is they had enlisted uh, a couple of lawyers that the Mexican consulate in San Diego had recommended to them. They wouldn't have a case if the case had been filed strictly by the parents. And so they wanted a child who had been turned away from the school, but who was also a good student and spoke English well, and that's how the case became known as Roberto Alvarez versus. It only went to the Superior Court in San Diego, and the judge's ruling was that 
Um, there were no laws in California that made it legal for a school board to set up a separate school for children of Mexican parentage. With that, Roberto's case was won, but it didn't, it didn't apply to all of California. It only applied to Lemon Grove School. Hmm. Schools earn their money by their enrollment. And when um, the children were turned away, instead of going to the new school, their parents had told them, you come home. And of course, the children did exactly what their parents wanted. They went home and they boycotted the school from January through February, March, and I think, I believe the first part of April. And so for all this period of time that the that the boycott of the Lemon Grove Grammar School was going on because the Mexican children made up almost 50% of the school, the entire school district's enrollment, it seriously impacted their finances. And therefore, they did not have money to appeal the case. And so this was a case that strictly applied to, to uh, Lemon Grove. What was something that surprised you when you did your research for this book, Without Separation? There were a couple of things that surprised me. Um, one of them was Roberto Alvarez went on to become a philanthropist. He um, founded a citrus packaging company, and he had, it, I think, close to 200 employees and uh, he became a mover and shaker in San Diego, <laughs> was, was able to uh, donate money and, and you know other services to further civil rights within San Diego. So that was one surprise. The, the other surprise was some of the hostility, and I don't want to go into a lot of detail here, but there is a huge movement now about own voice and people telling their own stories. And as a white person stepping into this, this realm of telling a Mexican-American story, mm -hmm. um, I encountered a little bit of resistance. And uh, my feeling is that if a story resonates with, a, with an individual, with a writer, no matter the color of the writer or the background of the writer, if that writer does the appropriate research and reaches out to the appropriate people and bases it on fact and not on personal opinion, then I think that writer has every right to tell a story, especially if it's an important story like this one. Well, I've talked to you before, Larry, and I've learned that you grew up in the Deep South and your coming of age was around the time of the most historic moments in the civil rights movement. Right. So would you say that you grew up in a household where you were allowed to form your own opinions and to even express your own opinions about what was going on in the world around you? Most definitely. Fortunately, it was a fairly liberal household. Um, and our friends came from all different kinds of backgrounds. And so I was never taught that any particular group of people was, were less than. And so I think that resonated with me. And, and then when I went to college and at San Diego State University, except that it was college then, you know, I was around 
during the late 60s and early 70s when uh, the civil rights movement was taking place, especially up in Berkeley. And uh, I do recall in San Diego, uh, oftentimes our classes were interrupted because of different protests that were going on. And so all of that sort of formed my background and the basis of my belief that every person needs to be judged on his or her individual character. You can't group people. Larry Dane Brimner's newest book is Without Separation, Prejudice, Segregation, and the Case of Roberto Alvarez. It's illustrated by Maya Gonzalez and published by Calkins Creek. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing for their support of Arizona Public Media.